Welcome to Rooted by the River podcast, the official podcast of First Baptist Church, Savannah, Tennessee. My name is Braylon Lashley, and I'm the Associate Pastor of Worship and Youth here at First Baptist. And I'm joined by my brother, the man of the hour, preacher, as people call him, Dr. Andrew Bosak. What's up, bro? Hey, brother. It is good to see you, man. Excited to be recording with you. And yes, that was something I had to get used to, but I've come to fondly uh, respond to people who call me preacher. And uh, it's good stuff, man. Absolutely. Well, we just came off of a rather eventful weekend and beginning of the week. uh, We had two memorial services back to back. Uh, We got to celebrate uh, those two lives uh, for Christ. And uh, then we took off to the Tennessee Baptist Convention over in Chattanooga, where Dr. Bosak got to open one of the sessions up with scripture reading and prayer. How, how were you, um, I guess, what were you thinking? What were your thoughts as you were walking up on that stage, man? Well, I was doing my best to follow the directions of the stage manager. He even had me to practice walking up the steps. He may or may not have referenced a certain politician and the lack of prowess with steps. So he didn't want me to pull a blank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the steps were kind of close together and very awkward, but, uh, so I was thinking don't fall. And, you know, I really just tried to work through some of the, the nervousness. I was privileged to be a part of the, um, of the convention and just to read a passage of scripture and pray just a very small part, but honored to do so. And I uh, really just kept in mind that I, I wasn't trying to um, you know, to perform or, or somehow show people how to pray or what to pray. I just was privileged to open up by asking God to bless the time. So it was a privilege and an honor. And we did, man, we had a, a, a challenging weekend at First Baptist, two precious members of our church went home to be with the Lord and we're praying for their families and we are leaning into ministering to them well, but uh, always thankful for the promises of God in those circumstances, for sure. Amen. We also have several uh, upcoming events in the life of our church. We are vastly approaching Thanksgiving and Christmas. I would encourage all those that are listening to go onto our website at fbcsavannah.com. Check out what's coming on down the line and uh, get plugged in. Get excited for the holiday season here at First Baptist. We're going to switch gears and we're going to dive into our Theological Concepts Part 3 And we are discussing two elements that are crucial to the church today, two sacraments, if you will, that we uphold and believe in, that being baptism and communion. So we're going to start out with believer's baptism, as we commonly refer to it as. I wonder, Dr. Bosak, if you could give us a brief overview of what baptism is. Well, baptism is the first act of obedience in the life of a new believer. We do hold to the reality that the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches, that baptism is to occur after one places their faith in Christ. And we turn to Romans chapter 6 to see why that is the case and to dig into a little bit what baptism is, what it represents. So I'm just going to read it. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 
through 5, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we have certainly been united with him in a resurrection like his. So Romans 6 teaches us that baptism is a picture, an outward reflection of an inward reality, some would say. That as we are lowered into the waters, it is signifying that being united to Christ in his death, our flesh, our, our sin, uh, our old person is, is dead, is buried with Christ. And then we come up out of the water, uh, united to Christ in his glorious resurrection in order that we may walk in newness of life. So immersion is crucial to this picture that's being portrayed, this spiritual reality that's being portrayed in a symbolic way by baptism. So the Bible says to be converted and be baptized and to be baptized as a believer by immersion is what the New Testament teaches us, not to give some arbitrary rules for the church and some kind of tenets of ecclesiastical order. No, baptism by immersion is important because it symbolizes a spiritual reality that the old person is dead and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism also uh, tells the church it's that public profession of faith. And we don't necessarily have to get into the weeds of walking an aisle and kind of telling people at, you know, an invitation that, hey, I've gotten saved. Uh, we don't got to, you know, try to bifurcate any of that. But the New Testament prescription for public proclamation that I am a Christ follower now is baptism. So very briefly, uh, yet hopefully in a somewhat thorough sense, that's what baptism is and that's what it represents. That's excellent. I love how you talked about it is a public profession of faith. And I've said this multiple times, um, either uh, on a welcome or other times when people have asked, but I took a missiology class and I learned about those that convert and are saved uh, become Christians in predominantly Muslim Islamic countries. And baptism is a sign for them. It is a literal public profession, not, you know, sometimes in the United States, we kind of, oh, well, I'll get around to it. Well, for them, it's if you are baptized and you're seen as a part of the church, it literally changes your life. So that's that's something that encapsulates what we're trying to say with a public profession of faith. I was in a class and there was a particular student talking about an experience on an international mission trip. And they were in a part of the world that Christianity was outlawed and as... Uh, they were sharing the gospel. They had to be secretive about it, and it was a challenging circumstance. So I want to say say this and kind of put this caveat out there before uh, we dig further into the story. I, I can't imagine living in a country like that. Uh, we are blessed to live in a nation that is free to worship as we see fit, uh, and you know we desire for God to still bless our country, and we still lived in a, a blessed, wonderful nation that we should be grateful for. So uh, we don't know what it's like to live in that kind of environment. 
So I say this with sensitivity, and yet at the same time, we should recognize the realities that baptism represents. Well, he said that they would share the gospel and that these people were coming to Christ, but that they were neglecting, intentionally neglecting to baptize them because of safety issues. And while I can understand uh, where he was coming from, I agreed with my professor when he gently yet forcefully pushed back against that. And he said, look, that's, that's kind of the point. That's one of the points of baptism that you are, whether it costs you something literally with your safety or not. Baptism is a part of following Jesus. Now, does it save you? No. But it is that that public proclamation of following Jesus. And it can be one of the measurements, if you will, one of the measurables to say, truly, I've put my faith in Jesus. It do, if it does cost me something and I am willing to be baptized, then we can say with confidence that I am following Christ because this is what he has called me to do. So again, with sensitivity, realizing that being baptized in the United States doesn't really cost us a whole lot. Um, a part of the point is Jesus calling us to do something that, you know, is just, again, kind of strange if we take our church eyes off of it. But in other more serious circumstances, could could put a, a, literally a target on our back. That's a part of the point. Jesus is using baptism to to say, hey, you're starting your journey following me by doing something kind of strange, potentially dangerous, because I, I'm not just an addition to your life. Uh, I'm your Lord and King, and this is what I'm calling you to do. Well said. Well said. You did hint briefly on something that we want to acknowledge is that baptism is not necessary for salvation, nor does baptism save anyone, contrary to what certain denominations or religious systems believe. Still, they advocate for it, and I've had uh, actually a run-in with someone talking about this over social media saying that baptism was necessary for salvation, and he gave the runaround, workaround kind of thing, but they still point to certain scriptural verses advocating for believers' baptism being necessary for salvation. So I wonder if we could tackle some of those briefly and kind of debunk this commonly held idea that baptism is necessary for salvation or brings about salvation. Well, again, in a forum like this, you want to be thorough and yet brief at the same time, so we will seek to do so. Well, I'm going to talk one of those passages in a second, but just let me approach this in three ways. Uh, number one, the most common place that people will look to argue that baptism is not necessary for salvation is the thief on the cross. He turned to, to Jesus, made him his Lord, and Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise, a.k.a. you're in, right? You're saved. You're forgiven. Uh, I, I claim you as mine. He didn't get down off the cross and was baptized. So we turn to the thief on the cross as an example of somebody who was saved, uh, was affirmed to be within the kingdom, and was not baptized. 
We have that example. Uh, you have the Apostle Paul, a second thing I'll look at. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. This is an interesting thing for Paul to say and uh, something for us to consider. Now, in this passage, Paul is arguing against the divisions that plagued the Corinthian church. However, if baptism was necessary for salvation, would Paul make that statement? How could Paul possibly say, I'm thankful I didn't baptize you if it was necessary for salvation? If anybody lived to see people saved, it was the Apostle Paul. He wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, that I am in the pains of childbirth to see Christ formed in you. And you don't know, and I don't know personally, but I have heard that childbirth is a pretty painful process, right? (laughs) So uh, Paul lived to see people come to Christ. So Paul, if baptism were necessary for salvation, he would be saying, I'm thankful that you weren't saved, that I wasn't a part of this, that I'm not there. Man, no, baptism is an aspect, it's symbolic, and Paul wouldn't be making these statements about baptism with how passionate and loving he was if it was necessary for salvation. And he wouldn't be linking those two together. Now, one of the passages, and just thirdly, again, for the sake of brevity here, one of the passages that folks will turn to to argue that baptism is necessary for salvation is 1 Peter 3, 21. And look, it says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Baptism doesn't save us from sin, but from a bad conscience. Peter is teaching that baptism was not some ceremonial act of physical purification, but it occurred in the heart and life of one who trusted Christ and was the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It wasn't the act of redemption. Uh, It's an important step of obedience that every Christian should take, but not a requirement for salvation. Now, if, and at worst, I don't, and a lot of people who argue uh, for baptismal regeneration, uh, they probably aren't thinking about this, but to claim that baptism is necessary for salvation really does push back on the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Jesus. In a sense, it adds to the gospel. Uh, We are saved uh, by faith alone in Christ alone. That's, That's it. Nothing else is necessary. And we must recognize that if we add something to the gospel, then we are eroding that foundation of faith that the Bible teaches and that we should all be standing upon. So... Baptism, important, crucial even for a life of faithfulness, but necessary for salvation, no. Well said. I know predominantly the Roman Catholic Church believes in uh, baptism being necessary for salvation. Uh, There are certain facets of Church of Christ as well that believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. So spot on with that. And uh, again, when you're looking at Scripture, we're not cherry-picking Scripture and saying, well, this is going to fit my mold of what I think it means or what I believe. 
we're looking contextually of what the scriptures actually mean. And we're letting scripture interpret scripture. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It's not erroneous in any regard. And so you can't say that baptism is necessary for salvation and then turn around and say, oh, but Paul says that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You can't say that. How do you come to grips with that contradiction? Well, you can't unless you interpreted it the way that it's supposed to be interpreted. The other thing that certain people will adhere to, uh, again, the Roman Catholic Church will do this for different reasons, but uh, infant baptism. So we as Baptists believe that baptism is for one that professes their faith in Christ. Uh, That baptism, because it doesn't save you, is again, like you said, a public profession of that faith. And in order for that to take place, you must become aware of your sin. God has drawn you through the proclamation of his word. You've recognized who he is. You've responded to the gospel and you have been, as you said, regenerated. You've been converted to Christianity. You have placed Christ as not only your savior, but your Lord. And infants can't do that. Straightforward. Now, Scripturally, I'll use a little bit of it. Scripturally, there's no record of infant baptism ever happening anywhere. And some people will try to use some of the passages in Acts and other places where you and your household be saved and baptized. But they're reading, they're assuming that that means the children as well, those that can't really understand. And so, and then there are some that do baptism, infant baptism for different reasons. So I wonder if you could just kind of speak to that briefly. Well, Peter got up in Acts and he preached and dude, he let these people have it. He, he just let them have it. They were the ones who put Jesus on the cross. Man, you were the, you were the ones that arrested him and did this. Now he, he did mention obviously that it was a part of the sovereignty of God. And, and yet he let the very crowd know, uh, the ones that put Jesus on the cross, who he was, what they did, and yet, again, God's purpose behind it. Now, he was, man, endowed with spiritual power. He was a, man, preacher in the moment. He was just he was just letting them have it. And they were cut to the heart, the Bible says. They were convicted. And they said, what do we do, right? What do we do? And that that's a question that we should ask at the end of, of every sermon. It's what preachers should ask themselves uh, when they are preaching a sermon. What am, what am I going to tell the people to do? What is What are the action points from this? Um, but uh, verse 37, I'll just read it, Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, this is important now, repent. Number one, repent. You are to repent. Turn from your sins, ask forgiveness, lifestyle change, repentance. That's the first step. Repent and be baptized. That's the second step. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance, again, it's first. That's, that is encapsulating this aspect of the saving work of Christ, accepting that free gift, repentance and faith. That's wrapped up in that word repent. So he is calling them to come to Jesus, accept his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, and then be baptized. There was steps before baptism, and it was, according to Peter, 
here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, both in his sermon and in this writing, the steps are, first, you must come to Christ. You must repent and place your faith in Jesus. There must be this conversion that takes place, and then you are baptized. Again, there are no babies baptized in Scripture, not one. And we see over and over again in the New Testament that you aren't called to baptism first. You are called to Jesus first. You are called to make him your Lord first. You are called to repentance and faith first. This is the aspect of the spiritual work of God in Christ to save us from our sins. And then we are to be baptized in this symbolic representation of his work and a moment for people to turn back to and say, hey, this is the time where I um, made my profession public, where I linked myself to other believers and to the church, and uh, this was an important moment in my life, but at the same time, not the the moment that saved me. So um, do I think kids should be baptized? Well, yeah, I I know there's some that say children just shouldn't, period. But I think of uh, my oldest daughter, you know, she wanted to be baptized. And for some reason, it's just what you did in church. You know, I want to be baptized. Well, you know, we share with her the gospel and, you know, hey, this is this is what it is. You you gotta you gotta know Jesus first. You you have to repent and place your faith in Jesus. So we had a lot of conversations working up, and you know, I think she finally understood. And I do think the Holy Spirit convicted her and helped her and, and revealed these things to her. And uh she prayed a prayer of repentance and made Christ her Lord, and then she was baptized. Um, so kids, yes, they can be baptized, but first they must come to Jesus. So good kind of a wrap up and then we're going to move on to our second aspect of uh, this podcast that baptism is not necessary for salvation it is a command that follows your being converted uh, placing Jesus as your savior and your lord you are commanded to be baptized if you can right so obviously the thief on the cross could not and there are some people that they convert and then they're not able to be baptized for a plethora of reasons. But as it stands, we're commanded to be baptized afterwards, symbolically um, being immersed, and then there are no infants being baptized in Scripture. uh, And even those that kind of appeal to the more covenantal theology of uh, infant baptism, saying that, hey, we're we are marking them for salvation that still is unbiblical. And I know that some people use it for baby dedications, that kind of thing. Here's what we would do. Here's what I would suggest. And I I think that Andrew echoes this as well, that baptism should only be for a profession of faith. And it should only be by immersion as commanded in scripture. And that if you want to dedicate your child to the Lord, don't baptize them. Just do a baby dedication, call it good. Let's move on to our second element here. Talking about communion, there's two sacraments in the church that we adhere to. The first one being baptism that we discussed briefly, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. You get really deep into all the inner facets of Scripture and baptism, but those are the main elements that we hit on. The second one is communion, or referred to as the Lord's Supper. So I wonder if you could talk about what it is, and uh, what we believe it is, and then we'll talk about some other questions. 
Uh, so I do think it's important, you know, we are not doing an exhaustive deep dive into these things. We're discussing them. We're kind of providing our stance here. We're talking again, mostly to our church. Hey, why do we do the things we do? And we're, we're giving what I do believe are, are biblical rationales and explanations and foundations to build upon. But there have been books upon books upon books written on these subjects. There have been seminary classes devoted specifically to these issues. So while we are diving into them and thinking about them well, the context is important. You and I aren't going to sit here for four hours, even if you want to. I ain't sitting here for four hours discussing this. I can't do it. And uh, so again, brief but thorough, hopefully. And again, we have in mind our church, uh, as we have set from the beginning at this podcast, is meant mostly to minister to our people. So Important to reiterate that. The Lord's Supper, as we think about the Lord's Supper, it is instituted by Jesus himself and then carried out through uh, the New Testament. And we see throughout the New Testament that baptism and the Lord's Supper are those ordinances given by Jesus that were carried on. This is one of the reasons foot washing is seen as just a kind of one-off example of of how to serve one another. This wasn't an ordinance. While Jesus said, hey, serve in this way, you don't see foot washing come up again throughout the rest of the New Testament and the epistles and acts and the pastoral epistles. You don't see that. So this is this is why we've kind of landed on these two ordinances and why foot washing isn't one of them. And uh, I know some, uh, including myself, uh, could amen that. But anyways, <laughs> the Lord's Supper, we pick up, and I when I lead the Lord's Supper, I turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and uh, read verses 23 through 26 in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I turn to this passage often because it provides this uh, thorough explanation of, of the Lord's Supper that Jesus took the Passover and showed his disciples that it really is symbolic of his death, of him giving his body and his blood to be the sacrificial lamb, to establish a new covenant. It is given in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 in the context of a church, and that it was to also signify their unity. So one of the things that we have done is as we remember Christ's sacrifice, and that's what the Lord's Supper is doing. It is pointing us back to the cross. It is pointing us back to that moment in which Jesus gave himself as, as a ransom for many, that he laid down his life willingly to save people from their sins. And the intake, the actual ingesting of the bread and grape juice for us is uh, symbolic of, and we are, we are taking that in, it is becoming a part of our lives. It's not just something that we are claiming, but it is this intake. It is something that has infiltrated our very being, if you will. So God in his wisdom set forth this kind of reminder, this infiltration, if you will, as an act of remembrance and what Christ has done for us. So this 
active eating and drinking in the moment is important, and the looking back at Christ's sacrifice is important. Doing it in the context of unity within the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that you're one loaf. He uses the picture of the bread to describe this unity of the church, this connectivity between Christ's followers. And we do the Lord's Supper in unity. We have done it many times here, started doing it in the context of a full meal. It was done in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 in that way. So we eat together, we hang out together, we avoid what the Corinthian church was doing. They were making distinctions and where people could sit and who got the good food and who didn't get the good food. Uh, so we avoid that nonsense. We are unified in Christ. We remember Jesus together. And uh, we, as often as we do, remember Christ. And it really is an aspect of proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the gospel. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord Jesus until he comes. We're essentially preaching the gospel to one another as we take the Lord's Supper. So for us, we essentially bi-monthly, so every other month, so six times a year, uh, we uh, take the Lord's Supper four times usually in the context of a full meal at a fellowship meal, potluck, usually fried chicken, a lot of sides, a lot of desserts. You've discussed the dessert table at length. And we take the Lord's Supper after that, and we remember Christ. We are thankful for His sacrifice, and we proclaim that we are in Christ preaching the gospel to other people at that potluck supper. And we have found for us in our rhythms that works well. Uh, some do it more, some do it less. There's no specific prescription and how often you should for us in our church. Six times a year is about right. And I know brothers who, in their context, it's a weekly thing. Amen to it. For others, uh, it's not as often. Uh, it's just really up to the individual church context. And what is, you know, oft, as often as you do so, do it in remembrance of me, what that flesh is out like, specifically, as I think the individual context is what drives that. Yeah. So very well said. You hinted on uh, how often should it be taken and uh, how should you do it, obviously, with the humble heart, with um, a repentant spirit, one that's longing to to love God and to do it in remembrance of who he is. And then obviously how often is really just dependent upon uh, the specific church context, not doing so again, the caveat is, is how you, how you should take it. It's not seen as this repetitive mundane thing that we take lightly. It's like, Oh, well, this is our responsibility. So now we got to, we got to just do it without even thinking about it. That's not the intention of scripture or intention of what was commanded to us, but how often depends upon the church context and uh, people shouldn't be shamed for doing it every single week versus doing it like we do it, you know, a couple of times a year. So spot on with that. There's a last thing talking about communion and we have to talk about this because I'm in church history and this has inevitably come up. There are differing views on the, what's called the body and blood of Christ, the communion elements, right? And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those differing views and what we view it to be. Well, I will leave these specific historical references to you as you are in the middle of your historical uh, reflections and seminary. But yeah, there are some throughout history that have different viewpoints on what 
occurs when you take the Lord's Supper. In the most extreme sense, there's the Roman Catholic Church and others of that ilk that claim a transubstantiation that takes place sometime as they pray over the bread and the wine, and they've got you know specific things to do with the leftover elements when they take communion because they literally believe uh, in a in a very real sense that the bread and the wine becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. And then you've got other aspects that are a little that are related to that, but are are softening in their stance. Okay, it might not be literally, but it's more than just symbolic. You know, kind of kind of flowing back from that extreme stance to probably where we would be in different places along the line. And my my main pushback would be. Jesus promised to be with us to the end of the the age. He he promises in the Great Commission that I'm with you. And there's no special circumstances necessary to the presence of the Lord being with us. This isn't some kind of, uh, and I I think at worst, different perspectives when it comes to what the, the elements are, can be almost a a reversal back into what we would claim made the old covenant worse than the new covenant. You could only experience the presence of God at certain times. And whether it was within the Holy of Holies by the priest once a year, whether it was, you know, Moses being caught off guard by a burning bush, whether it was Elijah in the cave, you could only experience God at certain times. Well, what makes the new covenant a better covenant is that the throne of grace, the the presence of God is available to us always. He's always with us. And then particularly in prayer, as we come before the throne of grace to help us in our time of need, it's always open. Well, if we see the Lord's Supper and the elements of the Lord's Supper in any other way besides them just being symbolic, well, that almost closes the door on one of the elements that makes the new covenant the better covenant. Well, unless you are taking the Lord's Supper, then you are missing out on a special aspect of God's presence. Well, nowhere do we see that in the New Testament. And I do think that's almost a, a an aspect of folks' theology that erodes some of the blessings of the new covenant. So while the Lord's Supper is special, the moment is special, the reflections are special, the proclaiming the gospel to others that you are taking the Lord's Supper with is special. There's an intentional aspect of reflection. There are some times where it's somber and it's sober, and there's uh, just more serious reflection. As we do the Lord's Supper in the fellowship hall in the context of a full meal, there's kids running around, there's people making noise. We've all just eaten. It's less somber and sober and more of a celebration of our unity. But if we see it in any other way than just symbolic, I think that is going against and driving against this aspect of what Jesus promises us right before he ascends to glory. Hey, I'm, I'm with you always, even, even to the ends of the earth and to the end of the age, I am with you. We can't disconnect the Lord's Supper from the Great Commission. Agreed. So kind of in summation as we wrap up and then I move on to some housekeeping, as I normally say, that these two ordinances, th- these two sacraments are commanded in Scripture that we observe 
that we are to be baptized after we are converted, that that is our public profession of faith. And then communion is something that we do periodically in uh, remembrance of who uh, God is, who Christ is, and what he did for us on the cross, and uh, just taking joy in that salvation. And so both are very vital to the Christian church. Both are vital to First Baptist. We see them as joyous celebrations, humble reflections, and uh, things that we should uh, always keep in our church services and in our ministerial lives. This has been Rooted by the River podcast, the official podcast of First Baptist Church, Savannah, Tennessee. We are on multiple platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website. I encourage you to go to like, to share, to follow, to rate, to review, spread the word. Let us know what we're doing well, what we can work on. We just want to be a blessing to uh, those that are listening, blessing to our church. Give as much clarifying information, doctrinal truth as we can, all while going back and upholding it with Scripture. This has been Rooted by the River podcast. We will see you next time.